Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Good morning. It's great to be with you for the penultimate week of this Dangerous Faith series. I hope you've enjoyed this series as much as I have. If you haven't yet joined us for uh, any of the weeks of this series, we're really enjoying it at the moment. At the start of each week, we go through our aims and what we're looking to achieve from this series. So maybe you'll find it helpful to hear this before we pass on to the video and then come back together to chat. So the aims of this series are to get a better understanding of the birth of the early church and how the gospel spread and flourished even under persecution. To deepen our own confidence in God's love and presence during our own times of suffering and to grow in awareness of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ and to stand with them in prayer. So let's watch this week's video together now and then in a few minutes we'll come back together and discuss it. The Apostle Paul. That's how we think of him. His name was Paul and his job was an apostle. It's a very holy sounding job. He did other things of course. He wrote letters, thought grand theological thoughts, but they were all holy things as well. But Acts gives a broader picture. In Acts 18, Paul the Traveller arrives in Corinth and in verses 3 and 4 there's an interesting little detail about him. He had a trade. He was a tent maker. We don't think about this much because we prefer to focus on the theologian and the church planter. But the thing is, you can't have one without the other. Without his ability to travel and earn a living, Paul would have had no one to write to. And possibly even not much to say. In the ancient world, tent makers worked with a range of materials. Not just canvas, but leather as well. So like a lot of craftsmen before and since, Paul was versatile. And he was also able to travel. All he needed was his bundle of tools, knives, awls, sharpening stones, needles, thread. And carrying that, he could travel from city to city and earn a living. There were two reasons why people like Paul needed to be mobile. The first was that he consciously decided to take the gospel on the road. He was a travelling evangelist and teacher. And the second reason is that because he was a travelling evangelist and teacher, he was always getting kicked out of places. That's how he arrived in Corinth, in Acts 18. He'd first been kicked out of Philippi and then driven out of Thessalonica and Berea by mobs. But in Corinth he found a home and a workshop with a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. Like Paul, they were tent makers. Like Paul, they were followers of Jesus. And like Paul, they too had been kicked out in their case thrown out of Rome on the orders of the Emperor Claudius. We can imagine their living conditions. Corinth was full of shops set around small squares or markets where artisans could ply their trade. Generally the owners lived above the shop. Priscilla and Aquila probably rented a shop with a room above it. They would have slept in the upper room and Paul, well Paul probably slept in the workshop. So that's the origin of the church in Corinth. Three exiles gathering together in a tent maker's workshop. They didn't have a church building. The early church, whether in Rome or Jerusalem or Corinth, met in domestic settings. 
There were no official public church buildings as such. For most of the first three centuries of its life, the Christian church was a house church. Sometimes Christians went to the synagogue, but they were soon exiled from those meetings. Instead, they met in ordinary places. Houses, tenement buildings, apartments, workshops. Acts tells us that the converts of Paul and Priscilla and Aquila eventually start meeting in the house of a man called Justus. But before that, when there was was just a handful of them, the first meeting place must have been in that workshop itself. So imagine an early church service in Corinth. They would meet early in the morning or late at night on the first day of the week. They had to meet early outside working hours because Sunday was an ordinary day. And these were ordinary working people. The tools would be put away. The floor swept, the shutters closed, the room lit by the smoky oil lamps. And they would sit there on mounds of leather hides or bales of canvas or the coils of rope. And there, in that very ordinary space, they would share extraordinary things. The bread and the wine and the stories about Jesus. That's the other thing. They had no Bibles. They might have had some copies of letters or parts of what we call the Old Testament, but but they didn't have this, a book with all the official bits in it. They were still writing that. What they had were stories, the things about Jesus that they'd heard and remembered and passed on, and for many of them, what they'd actually seen. It's a picture of church that many Christians around the world would recognise today. Today, the most common place for secret believers to worship is in a flat or a house. So let's picture one of those meetings, today's secret church. It happens in an ordinary house. Individuals arrive one by one at intervals so as not to draw too much attention. They gather in darkened rooms, the windows covered. People sit on the floor, no sermon, no loud music. And like Paul's church, no one has a Bible with them. They might have Bibles at home, kept secret and hidden, but no one carries a Bible with them in public. Instead, they have the Bible in here, in the head, and in the heart. There are churches like that all over the world, in Somalia, in Iran, in Vietnam, in China, anywhere where Christians cannot meet openly and in public. Sometimes the problem is not secrecy, but exile. Many Christians find themselves like Priscilla and Aquila, exiled from their home. In Erbil, in Iraq, one group of displaced Christians has their church in a tent, in the middle of a small square. Paul would really have felt at home. Their former church building is some 45 miles away in a place now occupied by Islamic State militants. But they've learned to improvise. And this is what their church leader says. We have our prayers and services in exactly the same way as we did in our village. So in this way, we remember our church and our village. He says, of course, I desire to go back to my church, the place I grew up in. But if I'm called to serve in the desert, I can still serve there. From sand, I can make a church. When you have a dangerous faith, you have to be prepared to live on the move. Jesus, after all, was always calling people to movement because it's only when you move out of your comfort zone that you find out how strong your faith really is. The early church learned that. They learned that because Jesus was always with them, their church could meet anywhere. Their Bible was in their heads and in their hearts. For the persecuted church, the same is true. One of the things which Open Doors does is supply the persecuted church with Bibles But the words never stay on the page. I've met many Christians from the persecuted church who can recite huge chunks of the Bible from memory. In one African country, I visited a safe house where Christians were learning huge parts of the Bible and were able to recite it by heart. Why? 
because they were preparing to move, to return to their homes, where it might be dangerous to have a physical copy of the Bible. So they carried it inside them. And because they carried it in their heads, they also carried it in their hearts. Perhaps around the world we've become too reliant on external helps to our faith. You know, we need our purpose-built buildings, we need our finely bound Bibles, we need our worship band. We don't have to remember the Bible, we can just look it up. And we can easily get obsessed by the ABCs, attendance, buildings, cash. The early church was more interested in the D, the daily life, discipleship, danger, maybe even the desert. Because with the right outlook, you can build a church from sand. Wow, I really enjoyed this week's video. And for me, there was one thing that stuck out in this video. And it was Nick's comment where he said, it is only when you move out of your comfort zone that you will find out how strong your faith really is. That is such a challenging thing to hear. And I want to spend a bit of time this morning looking at the dangers of being comfortable in our faith, in living a comfortable faith, and then looking at how we can grow deeper in our faith, but get less comfortable with our faith. Nick suggested that our comfort may come from a place of being too reliant on external helps. He said we think we need the church buildings and the worship band or a finely put together Bible in order to have faith and a relationship with God. But what's so bad about having a comfortable faith? We like to be comfortable, don't we? It's not a secret that we enjoy comfort. So why can't I have a faith with God and be comfortable? A faith in God and a relationship with him, but also be comfortable? Well, I think there are three main dangers of comfort. The first main danger of comfort is that a comfortable faith looks inwards. A comfortable faith looks inwards. Because a comfortable faith asks the question, how can the church best suit me? How can God best serve me? A big sign of how comfortable the church can be in the West is often the complaints and disagreements within the church about things that in reality, in the grand scheme of things, are almost irrelevant. Why aren't we doing this particular song at Easter or at Christmas? Why do we sit on chairs and not pews? Where did those pews go? Why won't we do the most modern song? There's a song that came out last week. Why have we not done it yet? Why was the sermon five minutes longer than it normally is? And I know it sounds ridiculous to think that these are genuine complaints and questions in churches around the country. But they happen and it shows that people 
can sometimes completely miss the point. We all do it. We all completely miss the point because we're so comfortable in our faith. The comfortable faith can easily become a bit of a selfish faith. As we look at what we like, as we look for the church that suits us, as we look at the things that keep us feeling at ease, keeps us feeling comfortable. Because comfort likes what it knows. It struggles with change and with the new because when you enter into something new, you lose a bit of your comfort. And this means sometimes comfort can reject what, is, what God is doing in the new because it doesn't like change. So instead it pursues comfort, it pursues what is known. So that's the first danger of having a comfortable faith that comfort, uh, comfortable faith looks inwards. The second danger is that comfort limits stories. The early church, as we were hearing in the video, they had no Bibles, they had no worship bands, they sometimes had no buildings, but what they did have was stories. They would meet together and their service, if you like, was basically them telling stories to each other of what God was doing in their life, of the provision, of the healings. And they had stories not because they were Christians, but because they were Christians who stepped out. They were Christians who stepped out and trusted God. They tried things. And as a result, they had stories to tell of what God did when they took the risk, when they stepped out. When we're comfortable and inward looking with our faith, We don't step out. We don't take the risk. We do what feels easy. We would rather do what is safe and comfortable than take the risk. And imagine being in one of these gatherings, these early church gatherings, where the service was basically people telling stories of what God is doing. Each day, or maybe each week, new stories were brought. There were new stories to talk about, to hear, to listen to, to see what God is doing in each person's life every single day. And as I imagine myself in that place, it makes me think, do I step out enough to have a fresh story of God's work every single day, every single week? Or am I too comfortable to step out and find that story? So the second danger of Living a comfortable faith is that comfort limits stories. And thirdly, the final thing I want to point out, the third danger of a comfortable faith is that comfort limits growth. Often because of our inward looking aspect of feeling comfortable, a comfortable faith struggles to grow spiritually. Comfort dislikes challenge and change and therefore it shuts out anything that can bring growth. Because what brings growth? Sometimes the things that bring growth are someone calling you out. Someone saying, hey, I've noticed this. I've noticed you've been doing this quite a bit recently. 
someone getting alongside and challenging you can sometimes be the way that we grow the most. But when we're comfortable and when we're happy with how things are, we reject this challenge. We reject someone calling us out because, do you know what? I like it how it is. I don't want to push myself any more than my comfortable faith that I live right now. Also, it limits growth in another way. It limits growth of the kingdom as it refuses to risk conversation that might bring a friend or neighbour into knowing Jesus. It refuses to take that risk, stepping out of the comfort zone so that our friend may know Jesus. So the third danger that I wanted to point out of a comfortable faith is that comfort limits growth. So if we don't want to live a comfortable faith, how can we say goodbye to comfort? Because remember that the people that Nick was talking about, Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, and also those that are part of the persecuted church throughout the world, they're just normal people. They're just ordinary people. But they're able to live a life that refuses comfort. And they have something in common that I think is key to saying goodbye to comfort. They lived in radical community and had radical discipleship. They lived in radical community and had radical discipleship. Nick said in his video that we are easily obsessed with attendance building and cash. Isn't that true? But he went on to say the early church was more interested in daily life, in discipleship, in danger. It is this daily life of living in community and discipleship that allows us as followers of Jesus to be the most effective as we could be. Because we all have the same calling on our lives. The calling on our lives is to mission and maturity. Maturity is simply growing to love God more and living a life full of love for him and love for others. Whether you've been a Christian for 90 years or whether you've not yet decided to follow Jesus, this is a calling on all of our lives, the calling of maturity, the calling of knowing Jesus more and falling more in love with him. And mission is simply about making disciples, helping others to grow in their love for Jesus. In some cases, this is introducing, in some cases, sorry, this is introducing people for the first time to Jesus. And in others, it's helping people grow in their faith and their love for him. This is what we read at the end of Matthew 28, isn't it? It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, what was the strategy of mission and growth for the early church? How did they respond to this commission to go and make disciples? What did they do? What was their response? 
Well, I want to ask the question, if you read through scripture with a fresh mind, what would your response be? What would the natural response be? How would I respond if I read scriptures? What would I want to do? What would my next move be? Because honestly, I don't think my first response would be to go to a church building. My first response would be to find my oikos and to live a life of mission within that community. You might have heard of the word oikos before. Most likely you've heard of it as the name of a yoghurt rather than the Greek uh, word used throughout the New Testament. But this Greek word used throughout the New Testament is translated to household in English. However, it talks of the household not as a nuclear family, but as a family, neighbours and those they worked with. Basically, the term oikos is talking about one's close-knit community of people. And this word is often used with the context of discipleship and spreading the gospel. The strategy of the early church was often that the gospel would be spread within an oikos, a community. So people would hear the gospel and then they'd tell their oikos in order that they may become followers of Jesus too. And as a result of these oikoses, these communities of people that come to know Jesus through relationship with one another, whilst they went to the temple, the majority of discipleship happened within their oikos, within their community of close-knit friends and family. And we see this in the story that Nick picks up on in the video. In Corinth, the church starts with Paul, Aquila and Priscilla in their tent makers workshop. And clearly they're in an oikos with each other. They're in community together. They're tent makers. They work together. They're surrounded by each other. And through this oikos, through this community, the church is built. Those in their circles, those that they know, get invited to come and join them in this tent makers workshop. And the word of Jesus is spread within their community and then spread out from their community. This is very typical of how Christianity spreads in the early church. If you read through Acts, you will read of this kind of story numerous times. As Nick said in the video, there was no external help, no building, no worship uh, band, not even a Bible. But through their oikos, through their community, discipleship was happening. Not only is this a typical story of the early church, but it's very typical of many churches around the world today. Within persecuted countries and persecuted churches, these home community church, that's the norm. It's so normal in these countries to have a house church community. 
because they're the only option. But also, in these places, they seem to be an extremely effective option. There's no big service, there's no preacher, there's no music, yet some of these are the fastest growing and most effective faith communities in the world. So it leaves us, I think, with two questions. Firstly, why? Why is this radical discipleship within community model so effective? Why is it that these house churches, these community churches, why is it that they can be so effective? And secondly, what does it look like to have a radical discipleship within community? And how can we better achieve that? So first, why don't we look together at why this oikos-focused faith, this community-focused faith, is so effective. So what I want to do is I want to raise three reasons why this is such an effective way to live out your faith before we look at how we can better achieve it together. So firstly, a faith with radical community and discipleship empowers every believer to take ownership of their faith as they disciple others. One of the dangers of having a faith that puts the Sunday church gatherings as the main event, as the main opportunity for growth and mission, is that it's easy to pass responsibility of your own maturity and mission onto others, onto the leaders of the church. It's easy in our setting to say, I'm not growing spiritually, well, that's Simon and Keeley's fault. Or I brought a friend this morning, I really hope this is a good sermon that converts them. Simon, go do your thing. The main problem with this is that there's a lack of ownership with this attitude of our own faith and our own personal mission field that God has placed us in. Don't hear me wrong, Sunday church gatherings are really important. They're really important to gather, to be a house of prayer and to be fed. But the most effective discipleship tends to happen in more intimate settings through chats and conversations about struggles, temptations and life. If on Sunday a brilliant sermon is preached on how we can follow Jesus and we go away thinking, wow, that was such a good sermon, but nothing changes, then clearly all we're doing is learning the theory. It would be like constantly studying for our driving test, but never getting in the car to learn how to drive. However, in a community of believers, an oikos, everyone is a teacher. Everyone gets to play. There is a priesthood of all believers, which allows us to disciple others, to help others grow and to be discipled by our peers. This is why Nick was able to talk about a setting where people learn 
big chunks of scripture because they can't rely on a preacher to preach it to them. They can't rely on other people to be the ones teaching them. Instead, they rely on their knowledge and their peers around them. So they memorise these big chunks of scripture so that, so that it's in their hearts and it's in their heads so that they can teach others and disciple others as well as being discipled by them. They realise they have a responsibility themselves to disciple and to look after their faith. There's an ownership of their own faith because they know that they're in a position where they can disciple other people. If you know that you are someone that God is calling to disciple those around you, how much more would you want to have the knowledge of who God is? How much more would you take ownership of your own faith? But the reality is this is our calling. Our calling is to disciple those around us, those in our oikos, those in our community. So we need to take ownership of our own faith in order that we can have the confidence to disciple those around us. This faith becomes our own to share and to help those in our communities grow. The second reason that this is so effective. So the first reason is that it helps us take ownership of our own faith as we disciple others. The second reason that this community-based faith is so effective is because a faith lived out in community puts us in the place that God created us to be because we are created for community. We were created for community. Don't let me get away with just making a statement about who we are created to be without looking at what we are told in scripture. When we have questions about who we are and who we were created to be, the best place always to look is the beginning, the creation story. And in Genesis 1, 26, it says this, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Did you notice anything there? You may have noticed that there are no singular pronouns. Instead, God uses Uh, plural pronouns to talk about himself. This is the first time uh, in the Bible where we hear God talk about himself as plural. And it's one of the biggest influences for scholars to come up with this description of God as being part of a trinity. God as three in one, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, three individuals, one Godhead. So God himself is inherently communal. If God is three in one, if he's three persons in one Godhead, he is inherently communal. He loved before creation, before he created anything he loved. 
and he was in community before creation also. And we are created in this communal God's image. Therefore, we are inherently communal beings. We were created for community. It is stamped in each one of us. No wonder Proverbs tells us that iron sharpens iron because we were created to sharpen one another and to flourish together. God's plan for us was always to be in community and therefore we will be most effective when we live in community. Finally, a faith in community is so effective because mission is most effective in our communities. In 2011, a 30-year-old study which interviewed 100,000 Christians within 50 denominations in 28 countries was concluded. The study asked the following question. What factor had, had the greatest influence in your decision to become a Christian and become part of the church? What do you think their answers will be? Well, four to six percent said growing up in Sunday school. Two to four percent said it was church programs that had the biggest influence. Less than three percent said it was their pastor. But 75 to 90 percent of people who answered this question said that it was their closest friends and relatives that had the biggest influence in them coming to know Jesus and going to church. The vast majority of people who turn to Jesus do so because they have a relationship with someone who is already a follower of Jesus. And it makes sense really, doesn't it? The person best suited to reach those around you, to reach those in relationship with you is you. You are the person best suited to reach those in community with you. When you have relationship and community with someone, you have an opportunity not only to talk about the theory, you have an opportunity not only to talk about Jesus, but to show them Jesus in your life. You can show them not only the theory, but the practical, the life, the testimony and God's work in you. So living in this radical community, radical discipleship within community is so effective. But how can we live that way? What does it look like for us to live in radical community? Well, I think the best example to look at for radical community would be the life of Jesus. Jesus had three dimensions to his life, up, in and out. Up is a deep connection with the Father and attentiveness to what the Holy Spirit was doing and where the Holy Spirit was leading. In is investment in uh, and community with those around him, for example, the disciples. 
and out, Jesus entered into a broken world and built relationships with those that didn't yet follow him. Up, in and out. A comfortable Christian can be great at living in the up, but they tend not to be so strong living the in and often non-existent in the out, which really isn't fantastic for reaching those around them. The truth is, to be effective in our faith, we need to live in all three dimensions, up, in and out. And you might notice that all three dimensions are wrapped in community. Community with God, community with other believers, and community with those that don't yet follow Jesus. But how can we best have community with each other that is life-giving and pushes us in our up and in our out? Well, it starts with a decision. A decision to allow yourself to do life with a few other people to let people in and to invest in relationships. Paul, Aquila and Priscilla had that thing in common, they were tent makers. And from that place, they built community. They even shared a home. And from this community, the church in Corinth was built. The deeper our community with each other, the more effective our discipleship of one another will be. Being able to be real about our struggles, our faith, asking for prayer and praying for each other's mission field is what we can do when real community is built. This kind of community isn't built from seeing each other on a Sunday once a week and maybe at small group if I could be bothered to turn up. This community is built from doing life together, eating together sharing together, laughing, praying, listening to God and weeping with one another. This is how community is built. And isn't this just what we're all longing for? We're all longing for community because we were created for community. Now more than ever, I think we're feeling it. We're desperate for it. Community can um, be built and can even grow during this time of lockdown. But let's not pretend that that isn't really, really tough. Because we're fed up of Zoom. We're fed up of not being able to see each other in person, to hug each other, to have deep, meaningful conversations with each other. And it doesn't feel the same doing it online. But we can set the foundations in this time. We can set the foundations and be ready for when we do start to come out of lockdown. How can we be people that come out of lockdown with stronger communities, ready to build our own oikos that invests in each other and that chooses to do life together? What can we change to not live such a comfortable faith, but instead to live a faith of radical discipleship within community. Shall we pray?
Father, thank you that you created us in your image and you created us for community. Lord, thank you that you put people around us to sharpen us. You put people around us to disciple us. You put people around us to love us and to help us love you more. And Lord, I pray that you help us not to just talk about the theory of community, not just to talk about uh, what community could look like. But Lord, I pray that you stir something in us that we will grow in communities, that we will build oikos, different oikoses throughout this church. People that will live life together, that will do life together. Lord, that they will be able to have a big impact for your kingdom. Lord, we want to be as effective followers of you as possible. So Lord, I pray that you show us people in our lives that we can build community with, that we may go away from here with stronger communities, that when we come out of lockdown, we won't just simply go back to how we were, but we'll go back to community in a stronger way that we'll seek community, that we'll pursue community and that through that community you will use us to grow in maturity and to grow in our mission. So we pray that you fill us with your spirit, show us the people to have community with and Lord I pray that you use our communities as we go start to come out of lockdown and into normality. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.